You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean Old Lion Media presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you for joining the conversation. It's my pleasure, Dr. Uh, Smith. I've been trying to meet you for a decade at least. <laughs> well, here we are, and I hope when COVID settles down, we can meet in person. Yes, indeedy. Yeah. Wow, there's so much to cover. We have only a few minutes to do it, but um, I'm going to do the best job I can and really kind of penetrating what has been a very interesting life that you have led and you continue to lead. Extremely inspirational, extremely historical. And so let me just start from the top. You are the eldest daughter of one of the most famous couples in history not just for African-Americans, couples in general, in history. And, you know, with that, obviously, comes a burden, comes a privilege, comes expectations and shadows. Uh, your father being uh, Malcolm X, uh, your mother being Betty Shabazz. How was it growing up as the oldest child of such luminaries? Well, I want to thank you for acknowledging my mom in that context, right? Because um, I was really blessed in having a united um, parentage along with their respective lineages. So even when we lost my dad, um, it was such a strong foundation when they were together that I, at least being born first, still have to date the, the resonating presence of both of them as a union. So I do recall hearing one of my little sisters referring to my mother about 20, 30 years ago as a single parent, and my heart broke. Because I realized for her, that would be her reality. And I'm just by virtue of being born first and having had such an engaged uh, father, um, a very invested father, I'm still defined by the inner monologues that I experienced young. Um, and so the dynamics of how I live in the world as their child is really from a domestic side of the tutelage. It's not from the outside in. It's not the presumptive. The presumption very seldom matches, right? The ex expectations from the outside don't fit the organic narrative of a family. And um, people very, even if, if inspired positively, don't give you room to be humanly you. Um, and people usually redraft what that narrative is as it relates to themselves and they'll presume that I am there with them. I receive it but um, there's a whole lot to who is Malcolm Shabazz generationally as is who is Betty Shabazz generationally like before I came. What united them and the grandparents and the broader family in and around. That's why I start there because you know so much has been written and miswritten, assumed and falsely presented, that I think it's important to start with the family unit and what you, it's your, it's your family, it's your life, it's your childhood, it's your upbringing. And so 
hearing you say what it was like to me is extremely refreshing and important. Uh, because as we both know, history has a, ten- has a tendency, to, depending on who's writing it, <laughs> to revise it to fit whatever narrative is an external agenda. And here you are growing up at the knee of Malcolm X and your mother. And I talk about your mother because as a married man uh, uh, to a great woman, I understand fully well that the greatness of either spouse um, is also the influence and contribution of the other. Could you talk a little bit about their relationship and how it was like growing up with that solid union that you mentioned? Well, very mushy. I mean, I I have to say that, (laughs) thank God I have that as a memory, but when I was a kid, it was a little kind of, uh, oh God, you know, (laughs) you know, the demonstration of love and, and compassion was not lost on me, Um, not to mention that they were babies to show for it later, although I had not put two and two together when I was when I was younger. Um, But to know that even when my dad was gone, the enchantment in the coup my mother would have reflectively about my dad, you know, um, and if I was would start a sentence and I would say, you know, mommy, when daddy she said, you mean my husband? I mean, like she she had like such a claim on her man. Right. So when people would talk about Brother Malcolm, you think my husband, she would correct, like put put it back in order. And it's because he always just made over her. She was like the cat's meow in my house. And it's great because as a girl growing up, that was the foundation of beauty. That was the foundation of ethics. That's where you gave regard. Um, I was blessed in a way where my grandfather was the same with my grandmother. So even though they were strong men, defining men, charismatic men, they also dug their women in my face. So I didn't know that was odd. You know, I didn't know that was an odd characteristic. I didn't realize, you know, when you watch the old classic movies and you see that example, notwithstanding color, just on GP, you know, watching them in the role of women, that was very foreign to me. I grew up as a Garvey grandchild and, you know, Amy Jacques Garvey was prominent in the defining, sustaining um, knowledge of her husband or whatever. So I was blessed with that kind of surrounding uh, where everybody had a role and it was, even if it was different, it was never menial to the next. Even though you were young, did you understand your father's importance outside of the household? Was it clear to you then, or were you too young to understand he was this person outside of your family? Yes, I knew he was something to somebody else because there was always that response. But he lived, I mean, he was, my father was a quiet man. He was a charismatic man. He was more internal, which is more characteristic to the family. But they were all very reigning, the resonant, you know, they were so, or charismatic. So that didn't shock me that people would turn ahead or come up. That was, I entered the world with that, you know, so that seemed normal. What was more an affront is when people presumed um, he was an adverse nature person, you know, that they, when people weaponize my dad, when they bring him up, to use him as part of their muscle or or assault and never including the intellectual prowess or the or the global sensibility the the pride of root it's always juxtaposed to anguish so i knew because you know when you go to you know laguardia 
there's a whole lot of people down there waiting for him too. You know, you're just trying to get to your guy. <laughs> um, but he, we were never eclipsed ourselves. I mean, there was always a hand on a shoulder and a, a lift up on the, on the hip. I traveled with him, close relationship, close conversations, you know, food for thought, all engaging. So it just seemed like life. And then we were surrounded by a number of aunts and uncles who were also shaping culture at the time. Well, I mean, my goodness, when you look at your resume and your history and you see names um, like uh, Ruby D and Ossie Davis. Yes. Uh, you see Alex Haley as your godfather. Yes. So you grew up in the sweet spot of such an important period for the country and for African-Americans. I mean, you grew up in the cradle of the civil rights movement. Uh, and these, the names that kids now study were names that were around your dinner table or names that you were accustomed to being around just in general. Just It wasn't always a, a big event that you had to be around them. This is kind of your milieu. Who they were. You know, I always say to people, it's really interesting. None of them in the 50s or 60s ever imagined you'd know their name specifically the day after. It was just how they lived. It was their commitment. It was their commandment. It was their conviction. Um, they all had families. They had careers. But they had a broad sense of responsibility to the whole. And... And and none of I mean I always say to people my father is not the beneficiary of his own contribution. Mm, interesting. So here you are. I mean, as a young child, and kids obviously scare easily, and kids are actually very perceptive of danger. That's one of the things a child can perceive danger um, well beyond their years. Was were there intense moments of fear? Were you concerned? What as a young child, what kind of went through your mind about what was going on? I would describe it as disruption, not fear. I didn't know fear until the worst happened. Mm. Right. So I didn't, I wasn't raised with any boogeyman kind of feelings or nor did my parents bring the outside into the place of, you know, watch out or danger or apprehension. Um, and it happens that the people that were disruptive were people who were once around us. Right. So um, characteristically, um, no matter what the retelling of history attempts to do now, 58 years later, in order to appease people, I happen to be one that was there to watch it in motion. So I, I don't mind that people need to make themselves feel comfortable, but I know the facts. I live with them. I've never been raised with any kind of um, need to out, disrupt, make a new second or third generation relative of any of those perpetrators feel bad. I can't imagine what it must be like to have that unfold uh, for any human being. That's not my interest. I know that I came into the world with really golden, um, well-intentioned, purposeful people. And I'm blessed in that, but there's a cost. Mm, wow. You talk about you know the facts and you were there. Let's let's talk a little about the facts. I mean, because let, let me back up for a second. So I came to read about your family in college. You know, I grew up in uh, a non-minority school system uh, in which the people we learned about didn't look like us. <laughs> uh, and so while I had a great education in the sense of science and math and all those things, I didn't have a great education as a young child, except for my family teaching me things, right? But I didn't have a great formal education uh, in us. 
uh, as a people, not until I got to college uh, when I read your dad's book and had such a different image of what, as you said, people weaponize and do all these kinds of things. But I, what struck me was the intellectuality of it all, which never got the prime recognition of how intellectual he was. And, and you know, everyone clung on to a certain part of what he would say and then modified it to fit their narrative, but extremely intellectual. And so what I find in his speeches were just when you read, when you really read them yourself and not let other report on them, uh, just so deep, right? On so many levels. So here you are. Um, and I think I read where you said you did an interview that there was a fire in the house a week before. So I'm talking about the, the fire. There's something you said about how your father handled it that was so inspirational to me as a man. So talk about the fire. Look, my father, I mean, I grew up around people who were, we now study, right? But they were all very steady and commanding. I'm sure as human beings, they were startled, afraid, apprehensive. Um, but when the fire took place in the middle of the night and woke up my little sister first, and then you could smell the smoke, um, and it was dark, you know, in the, in the house, you know, uh, all the lights were out and it was really quite choking, uh, quite, uh, what's the word, thick with smoke. Um, my father was very calm natured, very specific. And, you know, he's a tall man. He was six foot five. So he could swoop and gather and move and direct everyone to the back. And we exited out the back of the house and stood up. It was February 14th, Valentine's Day that year. So we were outdoors. Um, it was really, the air was really fresh. It was Queens, New York. Um, and the fire department was there. And we had family come and retrieve us where we stayed for another few months. It just happens that a week later, my father was also assassinated. So it was the, the countdown uh, from a public perspective of great change. But for two years, things were going on, you know, um, just different things that, that rendered the threat of our well-being or his well-being as a family. The fact that anyone would do that with children in the house is just more um, telling of what people will do despite women and children, um, even in a war zone. I mean, if this was about ideologies and you had a target, that's one thing. But that you would do it, whether it's in the name of faith or principle, and take children too is one of the things I heard him make a speech a, a day later uh, when he was in Michigan. Um, that's what unnerved him most. Mm -hmm. And did someone, how, how, did, you, did they ever find out how they started the fire? Molotov cocktails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the fire happens, you, you all get rescued, everything is fine. As you say, this is has been going on for a little while, these kind of threats to your family. And then it was interesting how you talk about leading up to the ballroom, um, you know, to that day. Can you kind of talk a little about kind of, you know, that day, what happened and who was supposed to be there or not be there, how that all came together? Well, I don't want to labor that day. I mean, I'm a human being who, for whom that day is as much of an anniversary as just, you know, acknowledging it. It's part of my own lifelong PTSD. My day altered. My life altered. I'm a witness to it. I wasn't just present. Um, my, my knight in shining armor 
was taken by people who look like us. That's why I'm saying however people want to dance around how they tell that story, who did, who didn't, there's always an alliance, there's a domino. We knew the conversations before, we knew the conversations that sustained afterwards. America, they're not chronicled in American narrative, but we know at home, you know, in those days, those conversations, the adults talk, things are moving, and it wasn't unfamiliar. I've actually had conversations with people who are no longer with us. Maybe one survives now um, who is clearly involved. Um, that in and of itself is my affirmation of clarity, despite everybody else's do do around how stories are told in order to make themselves feel better. I grew up around people who were just truth tellers. So if you were part of something because the era called you to protect yourself and you thought your ideology was at risk, if that's what some of the perpetrators thought, then just claim it. <laughs> we get it. We understand the period and the time and that people evolve and see things differently. I get that. I'm clear enough about that. Um, but I've watched the, you know, the hopscotch, you know, um, too long, especially because I've also had affirming conversations between then and now. And I just don't know why people can't just say what it was. It's, it's, so I'm not one who watches all of the docu guesses, the guesswork, because I know it's legitimate for people to explore them, but I'm not in question. So I don't need to like relive the dance. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say to you, how is it then watching all of this as you said, I love hopscotching basically, which I love to do as a kid, play hopscotch. Uh, I mean, it really is that. It's, 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 I mean, I don't know how I would, I, I would guess I would be frustrated and I'd want to go to the tallest mountain and scream to the world that this is BS, but you've handled it with such grace uh, and such dignity. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I understand. I mean, we talk about 58 years later that people would be curious, but because when I said earlier that none of them then thought, their names would be known now or they'd be studied people or referenced. Um, we didn't do the job then making sure things were fully chronicled. We didn't know that we would be part of history. I mean, all of us as black, Garvey didn't know it either. You know, it's, it's the, the people afterwards who want to capture and preserve. And, and so we did not do as much of a definitive job then and most people i knew by the 70s our parents and such really just wanted us to exhale people don't realize the civil rights movement was just upwards of 20 years so if you at least go from emmett till or rosa parks in 55 to the vietnam war in 75 it was an unyielding fight for equity with great loss at any given time with a number of people, some whose names made the front page, notwithstanding many losses. So by the 70s and the advent of Norman Lear, bless his heart, bringing television and the irony of some of those issues of social change to our living rooms with the lyrics written by Marilyn and Alan Bergman, you know, with the tongue in cheek to things or the likes of the Smothers Brothers or Lappin, all of those things that try to touch on all those those hot spots that people other people thought was just entertainment. Um, but for the most part, the families just didn't want to talk about it anymore. So we didn't write about it. We didn't update it. We didn't clarify it. 
Um, and so we're left with people seeking information. I think what's most interesting for me is when there's a scholar of some kind that's telling it in as if it's first person for him or her. And, um, and it's always done with a very flat American lens as opposed to a global citizenry, which is how my father, my father's only first generation American. So people don't realize that the lens of how he saw life and, and not alone, his siblings, my grandparents, thus myself and, and people around us was really much broader than how we tell and or retell an American story, um, respective to black people here. So you know the names and some of the names have been revealed. Have you ever confronted these people? I mean, you were on an, you were on an interview with Mike Wallace from CBS back in 2000 with Minister Louis Farrakhan, which I read the script. It was a very interesting, I read, I didn't see, I read the transcript. Have you ever confronted those who were part of the cabal, basically? No, 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 I didn't have to. They, people know who they are. I don't have a need to go back and forth. That's not my pug. I don't, I don't need to be in the ring. That's not going to bring my dad back. That's not helpful. If, if those people themselves and their restorative selves have not thought that there was value in coming forward to right those wrongs, however that would be imagined. You know, my mother left here without having had her husband back. You know, so I surrender to, to the afterlife that they have each other where they are. But no, I don't have a need to go back and forth. I actually have had conversations with quite a few people who've come forward to me in my 20s and 30s and 40s as awakenings and clarities. But I don't have a need to out people. Right, so they can, you, you have had conversations privately, but, you know, they've, they've come to you. Different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Your mother, who <laughs> my wife and my father-in-law knew, they used to go to a yearly retreat. Remember that? Oh, upstate New York? Yes, yes. Um, oh, what a small world. Right, right. So my wife met your mother many times. My father-in-law knew your mother. I mean, and, and I being an outsider and coming late to the game because I met my wife in college, she would tell me the stories of these meetings and she was still going to them. And what I loved about it was how intimate and familiar everyone was. To me, you know, Betty Shabazz and Maya Angelou, my goodness, these are historical luminaries. And to my wife and to my father-in-law, they were other people at the retreat. Like there, it was, and, 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 and I loved, I loved the shared strength of those moments. And when your mother died and how she died, I felt it. I, don't, I just felt it. So it was emotional for me. I don't know what to say. It was, I just felt like she was young and the way it happened and it was tragic for everybody. You know what I mean? Of course, I know. In, in some ways, those types of deaths are harder to take because you can't make sense of it versus other types of deaths where you know this is what happened this is why it happened. So I can Im- only imagine how difficult that was for your family. Well, for both, in both cases, my parents did not leave here with natural causes. It's tough. And, but what I've loved about your, about your trajectory is that you've spoken about how your parents molded you and how you have, how they lived, had they have lived through your efforts, which brought me to your book, From Mine Eyes, correct? I, yeah, I haven't finished the book yet. It doesn't exist yet. You know, From Mine Eyes was to be delivered on June 3rd, 1997, and my mother's accident was June 1. So my mother is a, is a living, breathing testament in the book. And so I would have to pause and do some 
some rewriting, but I've written quite a bit since not published yet because there's a lot to having to becoming matriarchal, <laughs> if, I could, if I could use that term. And I'm much more of a hermit matriarch, you know. Uh, someone else referred to me the other day as ninja. <laughs> That's the new word now, ninja. <laughs> Is that what? I don't know. You know, I had to ask her what she meant by it. But characteristically, I was always like that. I, I am. I have always had uh, patriarchal, matriarchal people in and around, and I felt stronger being an anchor or a translator of their missions as opposed to being in the front myself. Um, but, but listen, hold on for a second, though. No one can tell what you can tell, and we need you oh, I know that. to tell it. We need you to tell it. No, I'm aware of that. I, you know, I am so aware. I always knew that. And the older I am, and as each one leaves here, as each of these elders leave here to America, they wind up being stalwarts, you know, of classic history. And I actually know the narratives at home, who they were on the way to the set, who they were on the way to the stage. Um, what happens to our respective families when that anchor or the leg of that table is gone? Um, the casualties within families when that person or persons are gone. So I know that. And my, because for me, it happened earlier than most of the people in my life. Um, I'm a little more studied on how to reboot. And I'm also a spiritual being, so I can actually feel the presence or the energy on the other side. And you get to know how mighty that is. That is an unencumbered energy. Um, doesn't mean that you don't want to feel their caress, but I do know that there's stories to tell and I find myself dealing with estates quite a bit or doing the, being part of the eulogies or the post restoration of families. Um, and not because my stamina really gives me the strength to do it, but the commitment does. Well, I mean, you've spoken at, as you said, you know, a lot of funerals. What's interesting I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you off the hook about your book, by the way. As a fellow author, I'm not going to let you off the hook. But I, I, I'm going to turn for a second and say to you, what I also found very interesting was the relationship you developed with Yolanda King, daughter of, of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. And what was interesting was, I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Ebony Magazine brought the two families together, which was uh, groundbreaking since... They're historically, and correct me anywhere I'm wrong, please, but historically there was some tension between the families, correct? There was absolutely no tension with the families. America presumed there would be. People presumed Malcolm and Martin were nemesis to each other, um, where actually the families respected the other. Bless their, their hearts. You know, when I think about... I mean, Dr. King reached out to my mom when my father was killed. Dr. King reached out to my dad, my dad to Dr. King. I mean, there were relationships that were going on that could not disrupt the public presentation. So that's the difference, right? In those days, civil rights leaders were very, and organizations were very intentional. People think it's happenstance, that they stumbled into each other, that they bumped it. Can you imagine? Um, these, <laughs> how do you think they stumbled? These, these people know they have actual calendars and intention in the plan. And um, so with the wives as widows being specifically the kind of widows they were in the context, along with Merrily Evers, families were 
certainly indebted to one another. And as Yolanda King and I met, what chronicled it was Ebony Magazine. So from the public perspective, it was a big drum roll. But for us, it was natural. Hmm. Wow. So this this whole creation, now fabrication, that the families were enemies, that, you know, this is the this is the context, of course, right, that people like to portray. Malcolm X, the mean, angry, violent offender, Dr. Martin Luther King, the intellectual, gentle, peaceful, who does this stuff? I, oh, whomever, I don't know. I can't follow it. I don't run behind it. Um, people need it. They need to have a juxtapose. They need to have a counter. Um, there are people who want me to be much more voraciously against or opposed. And I'm one who I could read you as you. And if I can only be me in that context, I could share that which I want to impart. And if you come around, you come around, but I'm not begging, right? I can only example it the way I can present it. And what I've gotten to see in life, if you live it authentically, there are those who come around and see at least your point, but I don't want you to forsake yourself to take on my view. I just want you to regard my view. Has it been tough for you, given how people revise things and how they put their own spin on things? Has it been tough for you in your life, being the daughter of, of Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz? Tough in what way? Tough in the, 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 the falsehoods, the pressures, the expectations people find out who you are, to have these predetermined expectations of who you are as a person. No, it's not tough. It's disappointing sometimes. It catches me off guard at times. Um, I have to remember that they've written their own paragraph. So actually, I've incorporated in the work that I do when I'm doing executive advisories, when I'm uh, uh, working with students, in terms of what is your paragraph and how do you author it? And how do you get to go, um, you know, restructure it and define it? And when people have gone off you, you bring it back. You have the right to do that, right? So all of these kinds of things that were a little adversary or, or distracting, they've given me a lesson plan to share with others. And, and you do that very well, by the way. So uh, you also were named uh, ambassador. I read where it said it was in perpetuity, correct? Somehow, if this is my 20th year, so I, you know, I think an ambassador is supposed to have like a four-year stint, but it was like every time there was a new new administration, it was like, Your Excellency, I said, who? You know? Uh, <laughs> so I'm honored. I'm honored. I do think it fits my nature. So hence, it makes it easy to kind of just sort of hang in there. I think I will leave Earth. It's the first initial shared with my first name, and I've never used my first name since I was uh, I think 19 or so. So it, it, in initials, when I'm signing, it, it, all, it all fits. Um, and it's the- but, well, hold, hold on for a second. Hold on. I can't, I can't stop. So why, don't you, why did you stop using your first name at 19? That's interesting. I never did. I never used it. My mother, since I was a toddler, called me Miss Shabazz, M-I-S-S Shabazz. I was just her big girl. In schools, of course, you have your names on records, and, and that would be that. But Miss Shabazz was always kind of like my name. Um, and when I was 19, working for Con Edison in New York, and, you know, I was customer service, and I'd answer, good morning, Miss Shabazz, you know, how may I help you? That's just been my name. When I became ambassador, it, it shifted. But there'll be people in my life when I meet them and they say, hey, Mr. Boss, I know exactly which phase or stage they came from. But ambassadors like say, having a first name, right? You know, 
they, so it's it's easy for people. Um, and that it actually, I can actually concur that it fits my nature. I told my mom that when I was, well, I was probably in my early 30s. I said, by the time I'm 55, I'd like to be able to speak at least six of the 12 languages Paul Robeson spoke and be an ambassador. So my mother, an academic, said, mm-hmm. <laughs> so if it were one of my father's side of the family, they, they're visionaries. They're, you know, they're aspirationalists. They're, they, they would say, go for it. My mother said, yeah, right. Well, what's ironic, and, and I have a knack for, I have an ear for languages. I'm not as fluent in anything as I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, but I did become an ambassador. I didn't want to have, I was studying pre-law. But I didn't want a law firm. I wanted to translate culture. I wanted to be an intermediary of human nature. I'm a sociologist. I'm intuitive. And I also have a sense of or capacity to translate sensibilities from one to the other. So I just wanted whatever that was called. Of course, my mother needed it to be a law firm or or something, but as a Shabazz, meaning the paternal side of my family, we're just humanists. We are there to figure out whatever gets you from A to B. If you need to be a carpenter to do it, if you need to be a musician to do it, if you need to be a you know a conductor to do it, whatever it is, that's really different. But we don't have a, a name doesn't, a title doesn't really suit the fluidity of ambassador works. But what was so ironic is that it happened. My appointment happened on my mother's birthday. So every May 28th is my new anniversary. And I can, I can feel my mother in spirit space giving me a wink. Was that done on purpose, by the way? And by the way, the, the, it's Belize. No, they have no clue. They didn't know. Oh, no. And by the way, this is Belize we're talking about. We didn't, we didn't even mention it. Well, yeah, Belize is where I'm the ambassador at large, and that's what I call it because there's U.S. appointments and they've had different administrations there where they have appointments. But I'm blessed and honored. I am a Caribbean grandchild, so it feels very comfortable for me to be in the land of of uh, the Caribbean culture and the broad spectrums of uniting diasporas holding on to its histories and being able to convey and translate that to visitors. We're running out of time here, but I, I have to, given your history and being a witness to so much of the civil rights movement, I want to get your take on where we are now and all the things that we're seeing with voter suppression and all of the, the reawakened or unmasked racism and all these things that are happening. What's your take on what's happening when you look at it from a historical context? Well, none of it is new. We just did not exercise it. We did not do, we did not maintain that between 74 and 2020 um, the way we should have, the way we could have. I think some of it is the relief of not having to be at the wheel all the time. I mean, it was very exhausting. It's depleting people. We are idealistic. We're hopeful. We think what was done then is enough. But what happens is you have two generations that think it's about them. You know, they don't they didn't realize that once they got the baton in their hand, they would nurture it and pass it on. We did think we had arrived. Right. And so the thing now I have to say this Gen Z generation reminds me closest to the generation of my childhood because they're insistent what they're missing is the information that enables them to know 
they're not alone and that there are mandates that precede them. Hence, the, the likes of a Marcus Garvey, the likes of a Edward Blyden, Pan-Africanism is, is, you know, thousands of years old. We're older than the 400 years we reference. So if we talk about ourselves from 1619, who were we in 1616? Let's ask that question. Wow. Who were we before? Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, okay, listen, I do something that is very different. At the end of my conversations, I ask seven very random questions. Okay? It's not academic. It is very random. Maybe the most random questions you're ever going to hear. Okay? We'll see. Uh-huh. Okay, and it's it just... It can be the answers are as short as you want them, but just quick, quick, quick hits, okay? And then we'll close out. But before we do that, I have to say to you: if there's anything I can do personally to help you make that book happen, you have to promise me. If you need me to help you in some way, I'm, you got to ask me because I, that your book is so important, not just to me, but to our future generations. I'm not, and I say this very heavily that we need to have your voice um, and your intimacy uh, and your you're telling it's extremely important for our history for my kids, my grandkids, and everybody else, okay? Well, thank you, Dr. Smith. Okay. All right, here's here's Dr. Ian's random seven. Who have you always had a crush on and why? Uh, that's a hard one. It could be a TV star, movie star, musician, anybody. No, no, nothing like that. Um, Frederick Douglass. When I was four years old, I was going to marry him. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, Okay. Until, until my mother made my father tell me that that he was no longer with us. But uh, until after that, I don't think anybody's matched. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, what makes Ambassador Shabazz really angry? Angry? I don't live in a state of anger. Um, I, that's why I use the word disappointment. You know, and so, and I removed myself from those settings. If you were not doing what you do now from a career perspective, what would you be doing? I'd probably, well, I'd certainly be writing if I had the peace of mind and the stillness to write. But I know that even when I write, it would include atmospheres where others could also write as well. Who have you not met who you would love to meet and sit down and have dinner with? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there, I don't know, Dr. Smith, what questions? <laughs> I told you, they're just random questions. <laughs> Well, no, and and so maybe some of those I would keep to myself. You can do, yeah. You can say I don't want to answer. It's okay. Yeah, I keep it to myself. Okay. What does success look like to you? For me, it really is just as a mother and a grandmother. It is really assuring that the continuity of my family feels the fulfillment as individuals growing and being valued in the spaces that they're in. I mean, it's really simple. That includes my sisters whom I love and adore. I, I just think people need to know that their marrow has value and the yearnings have value and that we have to find our route to fulfilling that. You've had many happy moments in your life, but if you were to think of one of the happiest moments, when would it be? <laughs> I have a lot. I don't know. Anyone, give me any happy moment in your life. Oh, no, I, so I can't do that because it would eclipse others. I know what you're going to say. Other than the birth of a child. <laughs> and I have a few. Okay, how about this? Tell me a happy moment you had with your parents together. <laughs> well, they were very huggy. So we would all like kind of be in one couch bench 
you know, watching television and my parents were giggly and tickly. Um, I think being snuggled could be one of the foundational, sentimental, lifelong affirmations I can have about people who really dug each other. Last question. A hundred years from now, an article is found written about Ambassador Shabazz. What would you like that article to say? So did you take that from my class or my course? Oh, no. <laughs> that's a projectional question I have. <laughs> oh, that's great, then. You're ready. <laughs> that's, I never asked myself that, but that is what I ask my students, you know. hundred years from now, your name is in the history books. What are we reading? That's right. What is your contribution? How do we know your name? Um, oh, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> for myself, I don't know. I, don't, I think I don't project about myself as much as I will soon have to, just in terms of knowing what it is to secure a legacy and watching what happened to my dad's and others in my families, and that they didn't get to author it. You would like to be the author of your legacy. I think we should all be the definers of what that looks like. So I have a company called Legacy Inc. Everybody has one. So it doesn't have to be a name that anybody knows. It could be the brooch your grandmother left you. It could be the turned down Bible pages that was left by an elder. Who are you? How are you? And whatever that evolution becomes, you really get to determine how it alters, how it grows, how it shifts. Others don't get to assign that to you. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Ian Smith. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith. Executive producers Ian Smith and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Odyssey, or where you get your podcast, Or on IG at Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is a Mean O-Line Media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.